Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody, wherever you are in the world. It's January the 15th. It's morning in California, evening uh, in Europe, afternoon on the East Coast. And we're doing a a show today, January the 15th, on hunger. Now, hunger's in the news. Unfortunately, the dark side of the hunger news is that in our COVID crisis, millions apparently are on the brink of starvation as the pandemic exacerbates world hunger. Um, And one of the political repercussions of this, of course, is that Joe Biden is insisting on spending $1.9 trillion on combating the virus and presumably um, uh, challenging this hunger crisis. But there's another kind of hunger, which is also in the news, a different kind of hunger, perhaps a more positive one. Uh, One of the ironies, one of the more perplexing ironies of, of the COVID crisis is over the last year, Uh, Home prices, property prices, land prices are up 14% over the year. So today we're not talking about uh, food hunger. We're talking about the hunger for land, not just in 2020, but over the last few hundred years. And we're lucky enough to have one of the world's most prolific and popular writers on the show, uh, Simon Winchester. Uh, is known to many of you as the author of many, many books. I'm not even going to list them because it would take the end of the show. But he has a new book out, quite literally today, called Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. And he's speaking to me from his own land in the Berkshires. I checked out Simon's Twitter feed, and he, uh, in terms of where he lives, he says he's in the Berkshires. Uh, Simon, This is a book which is broad and historical like so many of your other epics, but it's also a very personal book about your own hunger for land. Explain why you are hungry for land and how you ended up in, quote unquote, the Berkshires. Well, I lived in Hong Kong for 13 years. And when um, the what was then British colony reverted to Chinese rule, as it ought to have done, in 1997, I came to the United States to live. I'd been here as a correspondent in the 70s and again in the 80s, and I liked it well, very well. And I'm sort of a country bumpkin. So rather than live in the city, I decided to get a little house a hundred or so miles north of New York. And I bought a small house, and ultimately the land that surrounded it came on sale, and I decided to to buy that, it was relatively cheap and also relatively useless um, insofar as it was on the north-facing slope of a mountain. So I kept that land for, in fact, I still have it today. It's not the land I'm talking from now. It's rather complicated. But that land is how I began this book because 
shortly thereafter, I became an American citizen. And then I began thinking about how it was that I now owned a piece of the United States of America, a relatively small piece, but I was literally invested in the country. And I began to think about what ownership meant, mainly because the original inhabitants of that land, the Mohican Indians, did not have the concept of ownership. No Native American, so far as I know, ever thought that they as individuals owned the land. And yet I did. And my wife and I were talking over breakfast one day about this idea, how many people think you can no more own land than you can own the sea or own the air. And yet I, and most people around me, given I mean, have an appetite for, as you rightly say in your introduction, a hunger for land. How did that come about and how indeed did it change society? So that was the beginning. I put it to my editor that I should write a book about this, this notion. And she said, you know, it's a somewhat formidable task. And I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just an American story. It was a worldwide story. And so anyway, a couple of years ago, it was off to the races. And th this book is, is the result. Right. So it's it's a tremendous read on many levels. It's a book about America and the world and modernity. And interestingly enough, you talk about uh, the original settlers in America. You dedicate your book to somebody called Chief Standing Bear. And the inscription is in 18, nine, uh, 1879, the U.S. government declared this uh, Ponca chief to be a person under the law. But they still took away his lands. Personhood and lands, Simon, are they the foundation of American democracy, this attachment to the land, the idea that we all have a right to own the land? Well, this is originally an English idea um, born in about the 15th century. Um, it's central not so much to democracy as to capitalism, because once you own land, once you own something which is in theory anyway immutable, not going to go away, um, you can go to the bank and use that as security to borrow money to then start a business or buy a car or whatever. So it's the basis more of an economic system than a, a political system. But it came about, and this goes back to this breakfast time conversation when we were talking about the notion of the ownership of the land in Dutchess County, New York, which is about 80 miles from where I'm sitting now. And um, it was the idea that in England, in an English village in, let's say, the 14th century, there were the houses in which people lived, and there was a tract of land adjacent to or surrounded by the houses that was quite literally common land. It was held in common, much as the Mohicans and the other Native Americans used to hold their land. And so the people that lived in the village would graze their cattle or their pigs or grow turnips or corn or whatever, all together in a great jumble of commonly held land. And then someone had the bright, very destabilizing idea in about the 15th century that, wait a minute, it's not efficient for the cattle to be in the same place as the wheat because they trample over it and for the pigs to be where the turnips are because they eat the turnips. So why don't we enclose the land that's for cattle, that's for sheep, that's, and people, once it's enclosed with a hedge or a fence or whatever, would say, this is mine. This is no longer 
land held in common. This is land held privately. And this idea took some while to establish itself and caused a lot of local grief among the people that didn't get to own the land. But it was then formally codified in England by, an act, by a series of acts known as the Enclosures Acts, which began in 1604. And they would tack a notice to the church door saying we're planning to enclose the common land. Uh, anyone that's got an objection can say so over the next month or so. If not, the land will be enclosed. And what was previously commonly held is now privately held. Well, this this is mine is, of course, one of the, 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 the founding concepts of modernity. I'm not sure if you mentioned this in, in the book, Simon. Uh, it's a very erudite book. But in Thomas More's great critique of modernity, utopia, um, he himself, it, it's, it's sometimes hard to tell how serious he is, but he himself critiques the idea of enclosure, suggesting that private property undermines community. And of course, um, many of the critics of, of, of 50, uh, 15th, 16th, even 17th century critics of modernity saw a basic incompatibility between enclosures and ownership of land and community. Do you share that? Do you think that the enclosure movement and the privatization of land represented in some ways the death knell of community? I do, very much so. And indeed, the book has a sort of narrative sort of a pattern to it, which ends up with me welcoming the idea that in villages like the one that I live in now, we are slowly, I won't say abandoning, but nibbling away at the idea of private ownership and reverting to communal ownership. The, I live in a village called Sandersfield, Massachusetts. The next one to it is called New Marlborough. And recently, in the last 10 years, the New Marlborough Village Association has gotten together and said to people, many of you have got more land than you need. I mean, how much land does anyone actually need? Very, very little. The amount that you think is surplus to your immediate requirements, give to the village and it'll be belonging to everybody. And so that has taken root, surprisingly, and in America, where you'd think it would be probably less likely to take root than in, let's say, more left-leaning Europe. But it has taken root and there's a considerable movement, not only in the northeast of the United States, but in California and Oregon, Washington, um, for communities to begin to own land in the way that it used to be owned. So I entirely agree. And indeed, the, the epigraph to the book is a quotation by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in which he challenges the idea that privately held land is a good and forward-looking movement, and that community-owned land is the only real way to go. So your question, and indeed, um, Thomas More's question, is in, entirely right, entirely appropriate. Yeah, the book, I think, is sort of laced with the great debate, the great debate of modernity, which to me is really between Rousseau and Locke. Uh, you, as you say, the book begins with a quote from Rousseau, the great quote from his discourses on inequality on property or land being the source of all evil, a very sort of post-Christian notion. But of course, another character, and you, you keep on mentioning Britain in the, or England in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, was John Locke, uh, the, the founder not only of, well, the, 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 probably the, the, the founding theorist of representative democracy who brings together economics and real estate. 
and ownership and land. Here we have Locke, a rather land-owning, gentry-looking kind of guy. Um, you earlier suggested that the book was more about economics than politics, but Locke and indeed Rousseau insist in their own way that the economics of land, land ownership, is by definition the perhaps the key political question of modernity. Is that fair? I suppose it is. I mean, the, the uh, and obviously one then must move on to, to Jefferson and his thinking that the idea of the improvement that you can you can own land in relatively modest amounts and improve it and by improving it and that means by stewarding it properly by harvesting from it the I don't want to get too religious here but the the, the bounty of, of of God or the bounty of of nature you're doing something which is um, meet and proper and will give you as it were the permission to own that land but I think the problem particularly in modern America is that people get greedy enormously greedy and now you have the situation where people own hundreds of thousands millions of acres but to what purpose and then the whole system goes awry but I think the Lockean view the Jeffersonian view is provided not taken to extremes is a very sensible moderate view towards the ownership of land even though my personal view is that community ownership is better than private ownership well you as as you say earlier you you dedicate the book to chief standing bear who quote unquote owned the land before he had the land taken away isn't the essence of ownership of land in a Lockean sense that you're supposed to add your labor to it and the well, that's it. That's exactly the concept right. yes. of um of of, of the uh, aboriginal i don't know what you would call them the original settlers on america was that they didn't see land in terms of labor is that the distinction yes it's very much the distinction and it's of course although we're talking about america here this book i tried to range as widely as possible and in new zealand which seems to me to be the model for the kind of land reform that um i think seems most sensible when you're dealing with an aboriginal population in this case the maori all the land in new zealand belonged if belonged can be used in a broader sense to the maori the british came along in 1840 compelled the maori to sign the treaty of waitangi and all the land then became under the um, the ownership of, of queen victoria and remains technically owned by Queen Elizabeth II to this day, ludicrous though that may sound. But the interesting thing about New Zealand is that they are slowly under pressure from a very, very politically savvy Maori population, giving it back, or at least giving title back. This is not happening, obviously, in this country. It's not happening in Australia. It's not happening in Canada, but uniquely it is happening only nibbling away at the principle. But the fact that it's happening at all is, I think, as far as indigenous peoples all around the world is concerned, a very good and progressive step. Uh, Simon, let's go back to that introductory quote from Rousseau. 
Uh, Rousseau says, what crimes, wars, murders, what miseries and horrors would the human race have been spared had someone pulled up the stakes or filled the ditch and cried out to his fellow men, do not listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to all and the earth to no one. Your book in many ways is about those crimes and wars and murders that have resulted from, from property, not just, as you say, in America, but around the world. Are, are there a couple of particularly dark stories that, that to you epitomize some of the mistakes we've made in terms of this obsession with the ownership of land, of our hunger for land? Well, on a, on a, on a very large scale, it's one of the most tragic, of course, is the desire by Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslims in um, pre-independence India, saying that the Muslim population of India deserved its own territory. He had a hunger for a country of his own. And Lord Mountbatten, the outgoing viceroy, said, all right, we're, despite the objections of himself and of, of Gandhi, who wanted India to be one country, he reluctantly said, okay, we will give you, we'll create two new countries, East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And East Pakistan is, of course, today's Bangladesh. The tragedy was personified by this sad, sad man, Sir Cyril Radcliffe, who was a lawyer from West, based in London, who had never himself been east of Paris, certainly never been to India. Mountbatten called him and said, we'd like you to come over and draw a line through the Punjab in Western India and through Bengal in Eastern India and create two new countries, which we're going to call Pakistan. And, um, and so Radcliffe, being an honorable chap, said, all right, I'll come over and do it. He, he took a fountain pen. He took an out-of-date map. He spent six weeks laboriously with a group of four people, none of whom would talk to the other local people, these were, um, drawing a series of lines, having no real idea the enormity of the tragedy that was to eventuate once he went home with the lines having been drawn. Because the moment the lines were drawn and he took off to go back to London, refusing his fee and burning all his notes, then the borders were settled independence was declared and all the Muslims in, well not all, but a large number of them in Western India rushed over into Pakistan and all the Hindus who lived in Pakistan rushed into India. The amount of killing was unimaginable. Millions of people died and all the responsibility of this blameless English or Welsh civil servant who, as I say, was utterly ashamed and died a tragic and broken man. So on a large scale, that kind of thing is completely, completely monstrous. Smaller scale, and partition is obviously central to these tragedies, Palestine being a classic, Ireland, Northern Ireland being another, and the legacy of the British drawing borders all over the world has, has made for tragedies big and small relating to land. So there are dozens upon dozens of them. Others, I mean, things that, concern me particularly or interest me is the way we have treated the land so badly mm. not just fought over it but polluted it and a classic case that i illustrate is the pollution with tons of plutonium of um, the west of denver in colorado 
where the land was taken, um, taken um, as it were, you know, entirely by fiat by the government. They put an enormous nuclear plant on it and contaminated over the years with plutonium dust. It remains more or less uninhabitable to this day. You don't do that sort of thing as the Aboriginals in Australia and the Maoris in New Zealand point out the land, I don't want to get wishy-washy or woolly about this, but the land is our mother. Not only does it not belong to us, but it's something we draw our sustenance from. We should cherish it, respect it, love it. It is not so much that we should aspire to own it. It, in a way, owns us and we should treat it along those lines. So there are many tragedies in this book. It's not, I hope, a depressing book, but the story of mankind, humankind's general approach to land has been pretty brutal, pretty tragic. Yeah, and the book, as you suggested, comes with uh, a caveat about land. You quote Trollope, who, who famously said in the 19th century, uh, it's a comfortable feeling to know that you stand on your own ground. Land is about the only thing you can't fly away with. Uh, but you suggest that we can indeed fly away with it. We are flying away with it. At the beginning of the book, you add a caveat with the world's sea level rising fast. The assumption that land is the only thing that can't fly away or the only thing that lasts is for the first time now being shown to be demonstrably false. The belief in land's limitless stability has informed humankind's approach to the possession of the world's surface for centuries past. But now a profound change is coming. The future, you say, Simon, the future is a foreign country. They will do things differently there. And indeed, the different nature of the future. We had a, a fellow on the show called Mario Alejandro Arizo written a book called Disposable City, basically about Miami's uh, ecological death. What is the future then of land, Simon? Is it uh, apocalyptic? Is it a dystopian? It's certainly not, not apocalyptic, not now, anyway, not in our respective lifetimes. But the land, without a doubt, and I've just done a completely different book um, about the geology of the East Coast of the United States, is um, the sea levels are rising and they are just inundating, quite literally, all of the world. The amount of land stock is diminishing slowly at the moment. I mean, in the last decade, what have we lost? 13,000 acres maybe of the United States due to sea level rise. But on the other hand, in Kiribati, in Vanuatu, in Bangladesh, they're losing a lot of land because it is so incredibly low lying. And indeed, New Zealand has recently opened its doors to what they call sea level rise refugees, people from Kiribati, the old Gilbert Islands in the South Pacific, who if their homes are inundated, can come and live in New Zealand. So it's not apocalyptic, but there's no doubt about it that the land which we once assumed to be totally immutable, the quote, they're not making any more land, this resonated through lawyers' offices across the world, is no longer true. And of course, it is notable, is it not, that the really big landowners in the world, people like Ted Turner and John Malone in the United States, people like Gina Reinhardt, in Australia. Gina Reinhardt owns more land in Australia than the entire land surface of England and Wales. All the land they own is right in the middle of these continents, likely to be unaffected by sea level rise for hundreds of years. 
They do not own land to any large extent on the coastlines because they're savvy enough to realize that that land is going to disappear. Yeah, the, our attitude to land is really interesting. We had Tom Zollner, the American travel writer on the show, talking about Americans. He said, here's our lowest common denominator. We all stand on the same land. If you want to know Americans, look at where they live first. Look at the land. Geography is our bounty. It has become our curse. Because, of course, he says, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Place is less important than it's ever been to those who can't free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. And I think you touch on that with your note about the wealthy. The book is partly about the way in which wealthy people are buying up the land, but also in the way they buy it up, they're liberating themselves from it because the Silicon Valley Titans, the Jeff Bezoses, the Ted Turners, the more land they own, the more liberated they are from it because it's more meaningless. Is that fair? Um, do we need to rethink our relationship to geography, Simon? Uh, well, I wish Americans had a relationship with geography, a subject which is no longer taught in American schools. It always strikes me as ironic that the best geographical magazine in the world, National Geographic, is um, presented to a population which is the least geographically literate, I think, of any country in the world. But that's that's the point, I suppose. Well, you've done These about a, as a writer, you've done more than anyone else to make people geographically literate. Are you say, are you saying Americans aren't buying your books, or they're not reading your books? <laughs> no, I think they're buying and reading them, but in relatively small numbers. I mean, if you, were, as an aside, let me just say that when I was eleven, I remember my school geography teacher in Dorset, a chap called Harold Mann write an essay, and this was long before Wikipedia or Google or anything, write an essay on the significance in America of the Hudson-Mohawk Gap. In other words, how important is the Hudson River, North, South, and the Mohawk bringing goods potentially from the Great Lakes down to the port at the lower end of the Hudson to wit, New York City. Most English school children of 60 years ago could answer that question. I would warrant that not one in a thousand American school children has the foggiest idea of where the Hudson Mohawk Gap is or why it's at all important. But anyway, that, that's by the by. The What you were saying about big American landowners divorcing themselves, yes, from the uncomfortable realities of the world, freeing themselves, liberating, is entirely true. Ted Turner and John Malone, television multimillionaires, are doing precisely that. What I uh, and what I don't like, what I I think those two have actually stewarded their land relatively well. But there are these people, the Wilkes brothers are the ones that I reserve a particular amount of venom for. They're West Texas fracking billionaires who made a lot of money selling the fluids that are pumped into fracking operations. They were bought out by the Singapore sovereign wealth fund, suddenly these two boys from West Texas had billions of dollars of disposable money, and they decided to spend it on land in Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and bar people from it, people that could hitherto walk on it, snowmobile on it, ski on it, because it was, despite being owned by somebody, they would continue to be allowed to have access to it. There were no particularly strict trespass laws, but the Wilkes brothers said no. Everyone must leave it. 
And so there's barbed wire and there are fences and security cameras. That kind of land ownership seems to be grotesque, greedy and unacceptable. The Wilkes brothers need not only to read your book, but probably more Rousseau and less Locke, Simon. Uh, I'm curious <laughs> to your thoughts about the, and you touch on it in the book, uh, the fashion for rewilding. Uh, a couple of months ago, I spoke to the marvelous uh, British, I don't know if you're familiar with her, Isabella Tree, who has returned her land to nature in uh, Sussex in, in, in southern England. Um, what do you think of the rewilding movement, of the return to nature, of, of putting, particularly in terms of the environment, of, 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 of taking out the chemicals and simply returning, returning land to its pre-industrial past? Charles Burrell and his tree at Knepp Castle in Sussex, as you rightly say, have spent a lot of time and effort in rewilding, bringing back onto the estate, the kind of animals and plants that used to be there before them and their antecedents, arable and dairy farm. It's laudable, but it's artificial. They've done it artificially. And it was a similar experiment uh, was undertaken in Holland about 20 years before the Dutch experiment was an awful failure. The Knepp Castle experiment is a great success. However, it is artificial. And what's happened here in the part of the world that I live in now, this, I live almost entirely surrounded by forest, which used to be farmed. And then the farmers that had it went away, went to more congenial land in the Midwest and the South where it's warmer. And this land was allowed to rewild itself spontaneously rather than artificially. So I have, I wish I could look out of my window now and tell you that I can see, but there are not only deer and bobcat and lynx and owls and bluebirds and all manner of original creatures that were kicked out by the farming in the 19th century, but which are coming back in large numbers because this land wild again. So there was no need for artificial wild rewilding. In other words, no need for rewilding, but natural wilding. And um, so I see what Isabella and Charlie have done, although laudable, as being unkindly, I know, and I shouldn't perhaps say this, but because they're tremendously nice people, but it's a bit of a stunt. And people go there, there are glamping sites nearby, and people are charged money to go and have a look at all these new creatures. Um, you can come to this part of the world and see moose, for instance, and they're not here artificially, they're here naturally. Mind you, I don't want tourists to come here, but nonetheless, <laughs> I prefer the natural Simon, And people will, will come and knock on your door. I <laughs> said uh, in the introduction today that this was going to be a show about hunger. I hope it's made you all rather peckish uh, for... Simon Winchester's marvelous new book, Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. As Simon, as you suggested uh, several times in this conversation, you are sitting in your estate, your land in the Berkshires, looking out at the window at nature. Um, 
in addition to your book, you're probably not allowed out. You're probably quite happy to be stuck there in, in, our, in our strange times of COVID in early 2021. What else should people be reading to make sense of the world, of land, of history, of geography in January 2021, in addition to your marvelous new book? Well, I must say I recommend Angie DeBow's book, um, A History of the Indians of the United States. It's the definitive book, I think, on the history and the plight of Native Americans. And it seems apposite insofar as I've dedicated my book to uh, Chief Standing Bear, the Ponca, who had his, who was declared a human being, a person under the law. Before 1879, Indians were regarded as essentially squirrels and had no, no civil rights. After that, they did. But nonetheless, they still took away the land. So Angie DeBow's book is very important. But I also, as a sort of a balance to my obsession at the moment with land, David Abulafia's book, The Sea, The Boundless Sea, I found to be fascinating. It's a, a tombstone of a book. It's not a book to read in the bath. It is um, 1,050 pages. But nonetheless, eminently readable, and I'd, uh, I'd mend it all the way. The Sea and the Native Americans. Well, Simon Winchester, a real honor and a thrill to have you on the show. I don't know how you produce so many books, so many important, well-researched, beautifully written books, but you managed to do it. And no doubt you will have another book next year, perhaps in 2022. And I, and I really hope you'll come back on the show. Uh, and I'm going to be one of the first tourists to come and bother you in, in, in your Berkshires to see how 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 the world could live how we could see the future you said the future is yet unwritten sounds like you're writing it thank you so much simon and a very happy and healthy 2021 and you too thank you very much indeed for having me you've been listening to keynote hosted by me andrew key make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.